0: It's a privilege to be with you this morning. It's always a privilege when I get an opportunity to serve with my friend, Dennis. Uh, You know, Dennis and I are the same age, uh, and last week was Dennis's birthday. So happy birthday, Dennis. Um, Next week is my birthday, which clearly makes Dennis the older (laughs) of the two of us. Uh, Just so you know, just saying, actually. I actually celebrated this new phase of life by going a boogie boarding at Newport Beach on Friday with my grandsons. And I haven't done that in 20, 35, 40 years. And uh, what I learned is that muscle memory has a shelf life. That's all I want to say about that. This, uh, this story we heard this morning that, that Dennis read from our gospel, the story of this woman being healed of her condition by merely touching the hem of Jesus' garment is a a story that has been challenging and a blessing for people for a very long time. It's kind of sandwiched between another story of the restoring of a young girl back to life. It's a great story with another good ending. But this account of of the woman uh, is a story of someone who's desperate. A desperate person who finds a, a kind of new lease on life, so to speak. But when you read the story, it kind of raises for us some procedural questions about the nature of Jesus' power and about his desire to bring healing into the lives of people. Because in most other cases, Jesus takes the initiative, or, or at least responds to a request to bring restoration to people. So he touches them, he speaks to them, he chases out their demons, but This time, it's different. A hand just glances across this frayed edge of his robe and the woman is healed just by touching the hem of his garment. And even though he's aware that something just happened, he, he doesn't know who did it, who touched him. And of course, the disciples, when he asks, who touched me? are a bit puzzled by that request. I'm really happy that that gets included in our text. I think it's a point of comedy in the Gospels that we often miss. It's like, what, are you nuts, Jesus? Look at the crowd. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus knew that something significant had happened. And this woman who who had touched Jesus has been living, we're told, for 12 years with this condition which put her at the distant margins of both social and religious acceptability. Her medical condition would make ritual uncleanness, in that context, a a perpetual reality for her. It would be a reality that would block her from participation in Israel's worshiping practices. And in popular thinking, it would also be a firewall between her and the favor of God. Just imagine that for a moment. Imagine being in a situation where you believe that something over which you had absolutely no control was evidence of God's displeasure with you. It may even perhaps a desire to punish you for for your own sins or maybe even for the sins of generations past. There is no remedy that the physicians can bring you. There is no, phys- there's no single physician who could bring the secret that's going to fix things, and there is no amount of money that's going to buy your health back. And then you hear about this guy, this itinerant preacher, this healer, and you tell yourself in this last desperate kind of attempt at finding a new kind of life that you just need to lay your hand on his clothing, certainly never risking actual physical contact. And if you do that, surely you'll be healed. Because God has got to be at work in this man, Jesus, if he can do all these things. And maybe some of that healing power will sort of spill out over onto you, certainly without God quite noticing, uh, especially if you can just sneak up without anybody paying attention to you. And it happens, except that you are noticed. You know, Jesus was the very embodiment of sign and wonder. It's true that that he ministered with a deep sense of of compassion. We see evidence of that. But everything he did was a sign of what God the Father was doing, a a sign of the nearness of God's kingdom invading planet Earth. And we can see this as as he reaches out his hand, as he directs his words, as he commands evil and death, to scatter, to run for the hills. But what about this woman? It seems different. She reaches out in fear. She reaches out without perhaps clear understanding of what's even going on. And yet she is healed in this odd way. Well, this story, like all the stories of Jesus' miraculous works, doesn't begin just in the New Testament Gospels. It, it's rooted in an extended prelude that goes all through the ancient Hebrew prophets. And in particular, the prophet Micah speaks into a national calamity that seems hopeless except for the compassionate intervention of God. In Micah's day, the, the northern part of the nation, Israel, had already fallen to foreign invaders. The people had been hauled off into exile. And the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, had become corrupt. It had become arrogant, fairly certain that they would not fall prey to the same fate that their cousins had fallen to. And long ago, Judah had immersed itself in in the political and military games of international competition. And that resulted in the people just forgetting about the God who had rescued their ancestors from captivity in Egypt, the God who had promised to always be faithful to them. And Micah now tells them that there's no turning back. The invasion will come, the deportation, the exile will come, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. Yes, it's clearly, he says, the judgment of God, but we see that it's a judgment that's consequential. It's an inevitable result of spiritual amnesia. It's the result of forgetting about God. So what are they to do? How are the people to find restoration? How can they return to a place of favor before God and a place of protection from their their enemies that encroach upon them like this giant glacier? Micah speaks to the people of a time that will come, however. It's a time where there will be peace. It's also a time when the surrounding nations will know that Israel's God is the one true God. And they will come to Jerusalem He says, to seek counsel and to learn to walk in the ways of God. In other words, a time is coming, Micah says, when God is going to put all things right. But that time has not yet come. For them, that time is not in present tense. It's trouble and exile that's coming to them. And so what do the people do in the meantime? Are there sacrifices that they can make? to somehow make God happy and to move his hand? Apparently not. And so Micah offers them God's word for right now, and that is to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. The work of God will not be forced somehow by Judah's kings, by Judah's armies, because their destruction is already on the horizon. So God's call is heard, but it's heard by a faithful remnant who will, along with everybody else in Judah, endure the coming invasion and the exile. They will not be left behind, so to speak. But the call to faithfulness is a call that persists, even in the face of danger and suffering. Some here might remember the LA riots, the Los Angeles riots of 1992. The riots were sparked by uh, just a whole series of, of injustices that impacted communities that had long been, been simmering in the heat of economic problems and racial strife and political injustice. And parts of the city literally exploded in looting and in burnings. And a number of people were injured, some were killed. One scene, however, is is burnt into the memories of many people who were watching their televisions during those riots. And it was the scene of a hapless truck driver who managed to get stuck in the wrong intersection at the wrong time, who was pulled from his vehicle and beaten to the point of death by a group of men, all on live television. The police had already abandoned the area, and it appeared that that man was going to die right there in the middle of the street. But there were four people... Four people who were residents of that very community that was exploding in riot, who saw what was happening, some because they were on the street, a couple of them because they were at home watching it on television, and they made a decision. They would put themselves at risk and try to rescue that man. And they did. They pulled it off. They converged on that truck. It turns out only two of them were acquainted with each other. The other two they'd never met before. They all just were drawn about the same time. They managed to get the truck to the hospital and the man's life was saved. They put themselves at risk to do that. When they were interviewed later, the people claimed that there was just something, something that emerged inside of them as they saw this injustice taking place. They saw it unfolding right before their eyes and their only response that they could find was to act with justice and with mercy. And later, after a a relatively brief time in the limelight, where they were celebrated as heroes, they all chose to return very quietly back to their regular day-to-day lives. In other words, they sought to act humbly. Now, I don't know if these good folks were people of faith or not. I did some research. I've not found any written record of that. I've heard stories that they probably were. Sounds like they were. As their own community was swept up in this time of of deadly rioting, a, a situation that some observers claimed was absolutely inevitable, perhaps like the inevitability of Judah falling to foreign oppressors. Those four people acted like a faithful remnant that remembered justice and mercy and humility. So during the riots, the city of Los Angeles was identified with the power of injustice and violence. But those four rescuers offered a better identity. They showed what it truly meant to be human beings made in the image of God. Well, the prophet Micah also spoke to a people who had lost the the essential nature of their own identity. The call to justice and mercy and humility was a call to what God had always intended for his people. The faithful remnant who would hear that call would reach out their hands as if to just grasp the hem of God's garment, the God who had long ago rescued the people from captivity in Egypt. And they would hope again, even in the midst of the destruction that was sure to come, because they lived among a people whose wound, it appeared, was incurable. Well, the woman that Jesus healed had most likely come to the conclusion that her wound also was incurable. She drained all of her resources on physicians that had done her no good. And maybe like like Job, she struggled to understand why she was the one to suffer through these twelve years. What had she done wrong except to be born and to live? What kind of identity forms in a person whose marginalization comes through layer after layer of religious and social exclusion? And yet, in the midst of that, she reaches out. She not only reaches out in faith, but also with the certainty that if she just touches his robe, after all, her uncleanness could be contagious. She doesn't actually want to touch the healer's skin And if she does it, she'll be healed, and as her body is restored to health, she meets Jesus face to face. You know, I think this woman understood something very important about Jesus. I mean, maybe she believed that he was more than someone who could do miraculous things, you know, if he just would put his mind to it. Her act of trying to secretly touch his garment suggests that she understood Jesus to be someone through whom compassion and healing just flowed, that his very character was formed by something greater than she had ever imagined, that he was the kind of person whose identity was truly grounded in the God who had always been faithful to his people. And so she reached out. Micah's call... To the people of Judah was not a call to more ritual acts of sacrifice in order to get God to halt the oncoming invasion. It was not a call to tag just a series of religious bases so that God would be appeased. The call was to become a people whose identity was grounded in the God of rescue and redemption, to be a people through whom justice and mercy and humility flowed, and to be that kind of people regardless of the circumstances of life. You know, I think that all of us folks who identify ourselves as Christians have a bit of a challenge in this area. Here in the US, we often hear people speaking of Christianity losing its voice, of being victimized even, of having our religious rights stepped on by our government, of being misrepresented by the press. Yet it's interesting, even with some decline, the pollsters show over and over that about 70% of everybody in the United States who's an adult has some kind of affinity to Christianity. Checking off on the box of choices, Christian, 70%. That's like 200 million people out of 300 million people, give or take. Christian churches still enjoy a tax-favored status. Every US president in my lifetime, from Harry Truman, to Barack Obama, every single one of them, has made some kind of a claim to Christian faith. Every one of them. I checked. They even have denominational affiliations, fascinatingly enough. But recent polls also show some really interesting trends in our culture about how we think about certain social issues. Just take one for example that's controversial in Christian circles is abortion on demand. Well over 50% of the people polled say They're for it. Now, I'm no math whiz here, but 70% and 50%, there's got to be some overlap going on here. Uh, It seems to me that if the majority of Americans really are followers of Jesus, as the pollsters are telling us, then shouldn't it result in a nation that's known a lot more for justice and mercy and humility than for a lot of the things that we're known for nationally and internationally? You know, politicians, and we're in that awful era of you know, presidential elections again. Well, I think it's awful, and maybe you enjoy it. I don't know. Um, but you know, politicians will speak of folks like us like we're a unified voting bloc. Uh, and to be honest, sometimes various Christian groups act as though that's accurate. Uh, we're just people who have rights like everybody else, and so we're a unified group. You get our vote, you're going to win. Um, If Christians really make up the vast majority of all Americans, then how can there ever be any pushback against our faith? And why aren't things better than they are? Well, I get it. Uh, A lot of people say Christian because it's the default box on the form. I'm not all these other things. I must be that. Um, I get the idea of nominality. I I get all of that. Um, For some people, it may be much more of a cultural identity than it is a religious identity. But those numbers must tell a very strange story to people across the globe who pay attention to these kinds of things. And So perhaps, like the ancient people of Judah, we Christians, as identified by the pollsters, often share an overall identity with the culture at large rather than the identity that God intends and desires. And it's true that Christians are often parodied in TV and movies. And the worst of our foibles are highlighted in the press, and if we, wouldn't, if we would stop giving them so much material to work with, they might not do it as often. But two things happened recently that speak to me of the world's longing to see something about faith that's really authentic. When Pope Francis first appeared on the scene, the press was just taken by him, dumbfounded by this man. Nobody had ever heard of this guy before, now he's the pope. And news reports overflowed with stories of the radical things that this new pope was doing. Living humbly in a little apartment rather than in the grandeur that was his right. Of spending time among the poor, of actually putting his hands with people suffering debilitating skin diseases and praying for them. Crazy stuff like that. The press was amazed to see somebody who was just acting like a Christian. He was a person through whom justice and mercy and humility just seemed to flow naturally. And the press was equally stunned when they reported on the people of Charleston, South Carolina, very recently, who gathered in prayer and worship just hours after a lone gunman killed nine worshipers at Emanuel AME Church. And the video uh, from the courtroom went viral when people heard the voices of those who had lost loved ones in that massacre speaking out words of forgiveness, words of mercy to the perpetrator of that crime. It was a. There were words that just, through their tears and their brokenness, seemed to flow as a natural part of who they really were. And that's what I'm hearing through the words of the prophet Micah and in the life of Jesus. And that is the call for us to be the kind of people that express the heart of God for the world, Not just through disciplined acts, but more importantly as a very natural outflow of the people that God is forming us to be. Micah's call is much more than a summons to religious conformity. It's a call to embrace the true identity that God has always intended. It isn't a call simply to do things, but it's a call to be a people whose lives and responses to the world are shaped by the very hand of God. So when God speaks through Micah about the hope that he has for his people, he promises to draw all of the marginalized of Judah— the lame, the outcasts, the afflicted— and to recraft them as his faithful remnant. And he speaks to them as a father speaks to a beloved child. Now, referring to them as daughter Jerusalem. And Jesus speaks the same way to the woman who touched his garment, drawing her from well beyond the margins of acceptability to the very center of God's love and care, no longer one who is nothing but unclean, but now one who is called daughter. May God constantly rekindle in us the desire to embrace our true identity as his sons and daughters. And may he form and shape us into a people in such a way that his justice, his mercy, and his humility flow naturally and authentically from our own lives grounded in him. Amen.